one or here. We use the word to refer to a prayer that Jesus would have said several times a day, especially in worship. Will you recite this Shema prayer with me? Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. You can have a seat. This summer, we are in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. One third of those 11 chapters are taken up with a story about Noah and the flood. This is the third week that we are going to talk about that story of Noah and the ark and the flood. I'm very thankful to Ryan, to Matt, to Barrett, to Kate for teaching over the last couple of weeks. Um, There is a lot of detail in this story about the flood, and there is a lot of water in the seventh chapter of Genesis in this story about the flood. So hear these words from the seventh chapter of Genesis. Um, I'm going to begin with verse 10. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the wellsprings of the great deep burst and the casements of the heavens were opened and the rain was over the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons together with them came into the ark. They as well as beasts of every kind and cattle of each kind and each kind of crawling thing that crawls on the earth and each kind of bird, each winged thing. They came to Noah into the ark two by two of all flesh that has the breath of life within it and those that came in male and female of all flesh they came and God had commanded him and the Lord shut them in and the flood was 40 days over the earth and the waters multiplied and bore the ark upward and it rose above the earth And the water surged and multiplied mightily over the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. And the waters surged most mightily over the earth, and all the high mountains under the heavens were covered. Fifteen cubits above them, the waters surged as the mountains were covered, and all flesh that stirs on the earth perished. The fowl and the cattle, and the beasts, and all the swimming things that swam upon the earth, and all humankind, all that had the quickening breath of life in its nostrils, of all that was on dry land died. And he wiped out all existing things from the face of the earth, from humans to cattle to crawling things to the fowl of the heavens. They were wiped out from the earth. And Noah alone remained and those with him in the ark. And the waters surged over the earth 150 days. This is the story of God for the people of God. 
Would you say with me, thanks be to God. My husband, Keith, uh, is a, in construction. And from Keith, I've learned a thing or two about the power of water. One night years ago, it was the middle of the night, and I rolled over in bed to snuggle into my pillow because I could hear the rain on the roof. There's nothing better than sleeping during a storm, right? Well, I rolled over. As I flipped, I found Keith sitting straight up in bed with his eyes wide open. He said, I'm worried. I'm worried about a house that we're remodeling over by the high school. This is not good. I bet it's taking in water. And he was right. Just this last year, as I sat fascinated by the reports of Hurricane Harvey on the news, Keith just shook his head at the television screen. He knew that it wouldn't be good for his friends that lived at the coast or for our fishing condo. Just one foot of water rushing through our property during the storm meant that the building was taken down to its studs to repair the damage this year. I have learned, I have learned that water can do some damage. And that is a large part of what this particular chapter in Genesis is about. It's about damage and destruction. The earth is completely covered by water. This story of the flood has, has one line of poetry in it. It's a story, it's a prose, it's in prose form, but it has one line of poetry in it, and that's found in verse 11. And even in English, you can hear the poetic voice. It says this in English, the wellsprings of the great deep burst, and the casements of the heavens were opened. This line is a priority because it's set up as poetry in the middle of prose. It's a priority because of what it signifies. And it signifies, this line signifies a reversal in the second day of creation. In the second day of creation, the Lord sets a vault to divide the waters above from the waters below. So creation brings order and sets limits. And what God says on the second day of creation is, Sky, you will hold the water above, and sea, you will hold the water below. But in the seventh chapter of Genesis, this is no longer true. The water bursts forth from below, and it falls from above. And two things happen. Two things happen when the water comes from below and the water comes from above. The first thing that happens is that the animals and Noah's family and Noah, they go into the ark and verse 16 says, the Lord shuts them in. The Lord puts them in the ark and closes the door. And I hold that that verse signifies for us God's great care and protection. Have you ever had a not yet period of time in your life? Where something comes to a definite end, but the new direction has not yet been designated. You're in a holding pattern in life. The Lord shuts the door to the ark. You're safe. 
you're afloat, you're waiting in God's good care. Now, there are other versions of the flood story. There were other versions of a flood, of a great flood story in the ancient Mesopotamian literature. Uh, but the divine care in our version of the great flood is unparalleled. You don't find that in any of the other versions of the flood. The Sumerians had this story about humanity being too loud at night. So people were too loud at night, and the gods didn't like that. They were disturbed, so they decided to wipe them out with a flood. Now, I'm kind of partial to that particular version. <laughs> I hold sleep as a precious commodity. So there's something about that version of the flood that resonates with me. That's the Sumerians. But the Babylonians told a story about humanity getting too smart. Humanity was getting too self-sufficient. And so the gods then decided to send a flood to destroy a civilization. But the Genesis story alone, in the Genesis story alone, God grieves. God grieves the wickedness and the evil that appears on earth, and God cares. God cares for those who will go on. God cares for the life that is saved. And in this one seemingly small act of God closing the door of the ark, there is, I believe, a priority of life. There's hope that even when creation is reversed, when devastation is abundant, that life has a priority, that life will be preserved. And so that's the first thing that happens when the waters come from above and below. God closes the door of the ark. The second thing that happens is that all the beings that have the quickening of life in their breath on dry land die. And this is evidence that creation is being reversed, that what was created is no longer. This is evidence of the destruction. I've talked to you before about my relatively new hobby of gardening. I started a couple of years ago when there was a lot of tension in my life. Looking out the back window of my home, there wasn't much to our flower beds a couple of years ago. There was mostly dirt, some shrubs, some weeds. So I'd have a long day and I'd come home and I would um, trim shrubs, pull weeds, dig holes in the dirt. <laughs> it's very gratifying. Then I started to plant. And Keith, who at one time had the ability to escape to Home Depot or Lowe's by himself, found that I was begging to go along with him. And there were some interesting results from my planting adventures. And most interesting, I think, is that not everything that I plant thrives. Some plants die, even out. I've put them in the wrong space. I get the wrong light the wrong amount of sun, so they die. I pull them up and put something else there. The weirdest phenomenon of all in my back flower beds has been the mandarin tree that froze one winter ago. So I cut it down, completely chopped it down to make space. And you know what happened? It grew back. It grew back. When I worked against it, it proliferated. My garden is teaching me that sometimes death is a necessary step before life. 
before new growth. When Alexander Shia writes about the setting of John's gospel, the setting of John's gospel is, in fact, a garden, he says this, Living things die or appear to, just as living things are reborn or seem to be. There is a dynamic interaction in a garden. The future of its dying is held by the living plant, and the fallow ground holds the seeds and the power of birth. In John's gospel after the crucifixion, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb in a garden. The garden burial setting is a clue to us about what's to come. And the clue is, this is not the end. The clue is, there will be more. As William Paul Young asked in the video that we showed earlier in the service, do you have a bigger view of death or do you have a bigger view of life? Because God's inclination is always toward life. In the book, Original Blessing, which was written by Danielle Schroyer, and I've used it a lot as we've gone through Genesis, in her book that's called Original Blessing, she claims that a major framework through which we understand our faith is the framework of death and life. And I agree with that. The sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of baptism reflects that framework of death and life. We have at times made baptism into what Schroyer calls a get out of hell free card. But baptism is really so much more than that. And we begin to grasp the much more of baptism when we see the truths of death and life and the tension between those two truths and the inevitability, the proliferation of life. When we are baptized, we follow Jesus' example. Jesus was baptized by John, and we too are baptized with water. And in the act of baptism, which is a sacrament, so a sacrament is always about grace. It's an act of grace. In the act of baptism, we are buried with Christ, and we are raised to walk a new life. We are raised to new life. The Gospels tell us, that Jesus made this seemingly obscure statement to some of the people that followed him. He said, whoever wishes to save their life must lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In light of what we know about how Jesus' story ends or continues, what we know about death and resurrection, what we know about how the earth teaches us that life works, death and life work together, what we learn in gardens, we need to know that some things need to die, right? Some things need to come to an end in order for that which is better to be birthed, in order for that which is better to live and to thrive. When I hear chapter 7 of Genesis, how it repeatedly mentions the waters and the flood, I immediately get the picture, the image of devastation and death. I get that. It's in there. 
But when I give chapter 7 a second glance, I get that something is brewing. Like a birth. Something new is going to be born. Now this is a stretch and I can't blame it on any reputable theologian. I tried. I did my research. But what I think about chapter 7 in Genesis is that it's a description of how the earth is becoming a giant womb. It's a description of how what's on the ark is yet to be born. That there's great potential in the ark. And we're not really sure what civilization is going to look like when it's born off the ark. And we don't really know how God will bring it to maturity when we're in chapter 7 of Genesis. But our sense should be that change is coming. Something new is coming. Phyllis Tickle was a very popular uh, Christian historian, uh, died just a couple of years ago in 2015. And in her life's work, she proposed that the church undergoes a major change every 500 years. She said that the church has every 500 years what she would call a great rummage sale or a yard sale. And she proposed before she died that those of us who live today live in that cycle of change. That some things in the church are being washed out. And what's yet to come is not yet. It's to be birthed. Yesterday I imagined the many complaints that were brought to Noah during the storm. Things like, Noah, this is your fault. I just want to go back to the way things were. Noah, how can you allow this to happen? Where do you keep the life vests? I'm getting off this boat. Things that all sounded way too familiar to me. But I also imagined Noah at some point during the storm, maybe opening up a window sticking his hand in the water that was outside the window and faithfully knowing that what is not of God will be washed away and what is good is yet to come. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, the life you birthed in us by baptism into Jesus Christ will never die. Your justice never fails. Your mercy is everlasting. Your healing river flows. Your spirit blows where you will, and we cannot stop you. Would you come and refresh us? Come upon us, Holy Spirit. Come upon this water. Let this water be to us drops of your mercy. Most holy God, Abba, Father, amen. In a few minutes when we celebrate communion by giving communion to one another, I want to invite you to touch the water when you're up here. Touch the water. You might make a cross on your forehead and, and know in that action uh, that what needs to die can die to make room for what God will birth, to make room for what is good.
Would you join me? We're going to pray the prayer of great thanksgiving together, and you'll see the response that you have, your part of communion up on the screen in front of us. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the rising of the sun to its setting, your name is to be praised among all people. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You are holy, Almighty One. Blessed are you, Jesus Christ. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you created all things. You blessed them and you called them good. You called to yourself a people to make your mercy and truth known in all the world. We betrayed your calling, but you were faithful. We wandered from the way. You called us to return and led us home. And still we turned from your ways, abused your creatures, and made ourselves slaves to sin and death. At the right time you came and dwelt among us as one of us, bringing good news to the poor, healing the sick, Raising the dead, sharing table with the unrighteous, and teaching the way that leads to life. By your incarnation, life, suffering, execution, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from slavery and made covenant with us by water and the Spirit. On the night of your betrayal, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the cup was over, he did, when the dinner was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Blessed Trinity, in remembrance of all you have done to save us, we offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has come among us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ abides with us. And Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts. Make these gifts the body and blood of Christ and make us through them Christ's body alive in the world. Amen. This morning, uh, as we take communion, I'm going to ask you to approach the communion altar from either side. You can tear off a piece of the bread, give it to the person who's standing across from you, and if you need words... When you hand them the bread, you can say, this is life. The same with the cup. This is life. And don't forget about the water. Touch the water. You can make the cross on your forehead with the water. There's also a um, gluten-free option here for those who need it. So the table is set. Our hearts are prepared. Why don't you come and celebrate the sacrament of grace together? <laughs> 